0: scripture for today's sermon comes from mark chapter 14 verses 1 to 26 the word of god speaks to us like this it was now two days before the passover and the feast of unleavened bread and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him for they said not during the feast lest there be an uproar from the people Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the day of unleavened bread, when when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent them And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to, one, to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. The covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of God to us.
1: Good morning. I hope you all are well. Uh, If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here. uh, And uh, and it's uh, just an honor to to be with you this morning. And uh, if you're new, I'd love to get a chance to to meet you. Uh, Before we get started, I want to welcome my friend JJ. Uh, JJ, raise a hand real quick. Uh, If you've been or stand up, I don't care. You want to take a dance, do a dance? Uh, Hey, JJ is one of my really good friends. I actually met him back before either of us worked at Frontline, uh, but he and I actually work on the same team now. He is one of our elders, uh, serves on Sundays at our Edmond congregation usually, uh, but he serves our entire church. You guys are, are, if you've been around for a while or are familiar, we're one church and five congregations. He gets to serve our entire church, helping us think through leadership development and also leading our community group ministry. And so, man, really grateful for you. I just want you to to see him because sometimes we're, uh, as a church, benefiting from the work of people that we don't ever get a chance to meet, and so when they're in the room, we want to we want to acknowledge that. So, man, really glad you're here. Hey, um, this morning, um, I we're we're going to be diving into some of the s- most central claims of the Christian faith. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to say thank you for being here. Uh, it, it, it's a brave thing to step into a room where you may say, "I don't I don't know if I believe what." anybody else in this room believes. And it can feel, we can maybe sometimes feel like that should be awkward. I just want to say, man, let's not not let that feel awkward. We're glad you're here. And there is no question off limits. There's no skepticism that'll get you pushed out the door. Uh, Any question that you have that comes up today or or through the week, we would love to step into into those questions with you. And so come and ask, but thank you for being here. This morning, we're going to be touching on some of the, some of the some of the things that bring the deepest pain and the deepest fears in our life. And yet, and yet, we're also going to see in this text the most beautiful hope that any of us can imagine. So, as we step into this, I want to pray for you. I want to ask you to pray for me. And let's ask God to speak to us. God, would you speak to our hearts today? We, we need your understanding, uh, or we need your wisdom to understand this text we need you to not just speak to our minds, we need to ask, we're asking you to speak to our hearts, that you would teach us what it means to rest fully in the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In 21st century America, we have a very strange relationship with death. Uh, I was <clears throat> watching a movie this week in which uh, it's a comedy, and while the comedic, comedic banter is happening, people are dying left and right, and we're just kind of laughing and smiling through it, right? Our, our movies, our TV shows are full of death, and yet, as soon as the show's off, we're like, push that out of our mind. We've got this weird relationship with it. It was, it was interesting, though, as, as a contrast, a number of years ago, I was in Ghana, West Africa, and we were all driving in this little car down this street, and there was, a, there was a market on the side of the street, and there were all these different things, and so you could buy your produce here, and you could get your kitchen gadgets here, and your brooms here, and there was your casket. And so I guess you go in, and you get measured, and you're ready to go, and, and it's put in, put, in, put in storage until you need it. And, and it shocked everybody in the room. We're like, hey, you never see something like that in America. We always hide that back in the back room of a funeral home. Because what? As Americans, we're fascinated by death, and we also never want to talk about it. What's interesting, though, is the Bible talks very frankly about death. It doesn't hide from it. It, it actually treats death with the respect it deserves, and it leads us to understand about the connection between life and death and all of the ways in which it impacts our life. You see, American culture is constantly working to teach us how to, to, ne- or teaching us how to avoid thinking about death while the Bible is teaching us how to prepare for it. This morning, I want us to lean in, and our passage this morning is going to help us understand the connection between life and and death. And we want to look at this in three movements. The first movement is the movement from life to death. The second movement is the movement from death to death, which leads us to the third movement the movement from death to life. You see, at this point in Mark, death has become the dominant theme. Mark, in the beginning part of Mark, it's all about Christ's ministry and and all the things that he taught and all the things that he did, and and there's this anticipation growing in the text, but as you hit these last couple chapters of Mark, the ones that we're going to be focusing on between here and Easter, death becomes the resounding theme of the book. And, And the book of Mark ultimately, at this point, is hinging on two different deaths. The first is the death of Jesus, and the second is the death of death itself. Mark is right now drawing our attention to these two deaths. But in our text this morning that Julie just read, we have this set of interwoven stories that are all pointing us to Christ's death that's going to happen mere hours from this moment. Merely hours away, Jesus is going to die. There are people that are going to try to kill Jesus to bring an end to his ministry, but what they don't understand is that his very death or that, that, that this death that they're trying to secure will anchor and secure his ministry forever. Let's look at the first nine verses. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, to arrest Jesus, by stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people." And while he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, while as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now there were some who said to themselves indignantly, indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like this? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And what, whenever you want, you can do good to them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. Now listen to this. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I want you to pay very close attention to that phrase. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. We cannot miss this. You see, at this this point in the the ministry, uh, the disciples do not understand what is happening. They do not understand what is happening. They're in this room. This woman has done this. Jesus has said these words that she's preparing me for burial. They're caught off guard, and here's why. Because the only thing that they've experienced from Jesus so far is the move from death to life. Jesus walks into a crowd and finds somebody who's suffering from some physical malady and he heals them. this place this thing in their life, whether it was whether it was leprosy or, or whether it was uh, uh, blindness, was bringing death to them and yet Jesus speaks into this and heals them and brings life out of it. Jesus walks up to those that are demon-possessed, those that are, that are, that are uh, uh, afflicted by the enemy. And he brings them freedom by casting the demons out. He brings them from a kind of spiritual death to a spiritual life. And then he literally raises the dead. This little girl who dies tragically, he brings to life and his friend Lazarus. He speaks, and he's back to life. You see, the the disciples have experienced Jesus' ministry as a constant move from life to death. So they don't understand this talk about getting Jesus ready for his burial. That's not the way this story goes. The story goes to life. So the only thing that they can see is what this woman is doing, and they're offended because, look, remember, these are poor homeless ministers wandering around, and and they're, they're not exactly living high on the hog. These disciples are, uh, are, are, are probably pinching pennies, making sure they can make it through to the next meal, and they see this woman pour out months' worth of income. They're indignant. It seems like a waste of valuable resources. Now, we don't know what the woman's experiencing. We don't know what she understood we don't know whether she, the text doesn't tell us if she knew that she was anointing Jesus for his burial, or whether just out of an overflow of worship and adoration for her, for her teacher, she, she anoints him with this costly offering. She brings a costly offering to the one whom she loves and the one whom she trusts. But whether she understood it or not, Jesus knew exactly what was happening. And he prophesies and tells them that what she is doing is getting him ready for his death. You see, the one that the Apostle John calls the life in the Gospel of John is now on his way to his death. You can understand why the disciples are, 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 qu- are not quite understanding how to put these pieces together, can't you? But this is the way of life, isn't it? The constant march Toward death. And we live in a world dominated by this law of nature that says that everything that lives must one day die. Clearly, that's true of physical death. But the Bible doesn't stop there, the Bible talks about spiritual death. In Genesis 1, God creates, creates the world, places Adam and Eve in the garden, breathes life into their lungs, giving them the very life they need, gives them a tree that leads to life. And then in the garden is also a tree that leads to death. And he says, don't eat of that. In the day you eat, you will very surely die. And what do Adam and Eve do? They have a picnic and it brings death. And what you see throughout the rest of the Old Testament is this working out of life leading to death. Physically, yes, but also spiritually. You see relationships ending. Human flourishing ending. Peace dying. Hope fading. And now we see Jesus, the one who is called the life, marching towards his death. But don't miss what else is going on in this passage because what you see here is you see a contrast of hopes and expectations of two different groups. You have, you have these religious leaders who are working behind the scenes to make sure that they can put Jesus to death. What, what they have placed their hope in is that they can defeat Jesus because he's a menace to their ministry. He's getting in the way all the time. And so they hope to defeat Jesus by killing him. Their expectation is what? Jesus is going to die. But Jesus' disciples are coming out this radically differently. They have the hope that Jesus will march into Jerusalem in victory. Their hope is that his victory will be secured by his life. The religious leaders expect him to die. The disciples expect him to live. The religious leaders expect him to be defeated. The disciples expect victory. And what Jesus does... It speaks prophetically in this act to say that the very thing, the very thing that the disciples hoped for would actually be found in the thing the religious leaders hoped for. In this one act, Jesus declares that his victory will be secured through his death. Not around his death, not bypassing it, not dodging it like Neo, dodging the bullets in the Matrix, but him going right through death the very thing the disciples hoped for and the religious leaders feared his victory would come through the very thing the religious leaders hoped for and his disciples feared his death. It is at this point that we must reckon with one critical truth. Only Jesus can take death and turn it into victory. Only Jesus can take death and turn it into victory. But even though Jesus' death will lead to our hope as Christians, we're going to get to this a little bit more here in a, in a second. Death is never talked about in the Bible as our friend. Death is not a friend, death is a thief. Death is never talked about as a good thing. But what the Bible does tell us is that death leads to more death. And that's why this brings us to our second movement to talk about the movement from death to death. You see, it's fascinating the way that Mark sandwiches these two stories of betrayal around this anointing of Jesus. The story about Jesus being anointed for his burial is sandwiched by the, manipulate, or the, the work of the, the religious leaders and Judas to betray Jesus. So let's look at these two passages side by side because I, I think it'll help us understand what's going on in this text. Verse 1, it it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, let there be an uproar from the people. Then we get the story of the anointing, and then we read these words, verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. You see, at the very moment when Jesus is prophesying the truth about his death, forces are gathering to bring it about. But I think what we see in this passage is this reality borne out that death leads to death in our experiences. You see, we don't know for sure what caused the religious leaders to want to, to, to kill Jesus. We don't, we don't know what started here. But, but I just want to, I think, I think we can step out on the limb here and say it probably didn't happen overnight. I don't think the religious leaders were like buddies with Jesus, having a lot of fun, and they really like this guy. Man, he's you should go listen to him teach. He's a really good teacher. And he heals people every once in a while, and they're doing that, and then all of a sudden one morning they wake up and they're like, you know what, we should just kill him. Why? I don't know, just because. Like that's not the way it happened, did it? It would have happened slowly. It would have happened slowly. One small root of bitterness, one small rejection of his claims of authority led to another rejection, led to another root of bitterness, led to growth of resentment, growth of sin, growth of rebellion. Slowly, over time, their hatred grew. A step. At a time, and then one day, while Jesus is ministering in Jerusalem, they said, This is it. We're done. We've got to kill him. In the same way, we don't know what caused J- Judas to betray Jesus, but I think we can go out on the same limb and say the same thing to, about him. It didn't happen overnight. Judas wasn't in love with his Messiah and following his Messiah and hanging on every word and live, live, living under the discipline of, his, uh, uh, of his, uh, his, uh, his teacher. And then all of a sudden one morning he just wakes up and he goes, ah, you know what, I think I'm just going to betray him. No, it, it would have happened slowly, right? It would have happened slowly. One small root of bitterness. One small rejection of the claims of Jesus. One small rebellion that then grew to a bigger one. Into to another one, to a bigger one. Until one day, Judas, who was loved and chosen by Jesus himself to be one of the twelve, decides to go out and talk to Jesus' enemy and work with them to betray him. I'd like to say that's where the pattern ends, but it doesn't, does it? Because that's a pattern of our lives as well. In our lives, sin leads to more sin, death leads to more death. Doesn't happen overnight. It happens slowly. One small rejection of God's authority, one small root of bitterness, one small what what feels small, insignificant, rejection of the claims of Jesus leads to another one, into another one, and to another one, and that small root of bitterness and rebellion leads to more bitterness and rebellion until one day we find ourselves surrounded by a death we never saw coming. see, what the Bible teaches us is that sin always leads to death. The book of Romans tells us that death is actually the wages of sin. It's actually what we earn from sin. And, and, and we see this both immediately and eternally, that there are immediate consequences to our sin and there are eternal consequences to our sin. Let's look at Romans 6, verse 20. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Well, what fruit were you getting at the time of these things in which you are now ashamed? Listen to this. For the end of those things is what? Want to hear it? Death. Sin brings death. There's no way around this reality. And yet, verse 22, and, but, but, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's end eternal life. For what? The wages of sin is What? but the free gift of God is what? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Wages, sin or death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. You see, it is our death, listen to me, it is our death that leads to Jesus' death. But just as you heard me there, hear me here, but Jesus' death leads to our life. This is a free gift. But he's also really clear that this gift is for those who have trusted in him, who've placed their hope, that aren't trying to save themselves or aren't trying to avoid the sin and, and act like it's not real, but actually recognize that they can't save themselves. Those who trust in Jesus will receive his life. Listen, friends, this right here is why Jesus was determined to die. Death didn't sneak up on him. Death didn't catch him from behind. Jesus walks into Jerusalem determined to die because of this truth. Listen to me very carefully. Either he dies and we live, or he lives and we die. It's one of the two, folks. And because of his grace, he chose his death so that we might live. this point that religious leaders are determined to kill Jesus. I, I think had they realized what they were about to unleash by killing him, they would have found a different way to silence him. It wouldn't have worked, but they would have tried. But it, it is at this point that we are faced, and Romans brings us into this third movement. We've already looked at how life leads to death. We've looked at how death leads to death, but this introduces this idea of how death leads to life. Let's look back at this passage about the Lord's Supper, which is a familiar passage to some of us if you've grown up in the church. But I, wanna, I want us to read this story again in context of what's happening in the rest of this chapter. Let's look at verse 17 Mark 14. And when it was evening, he came to the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to one another, Is it I? He said to them, it's, it's one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Stop for just a second. I want to point out two things about Judas here. It's fascinating. The first is, nobody at this table when Jesus said, hey, one of you is going to betray me, all of them looked and go, it's going to be him. I mean, have you seen the way he's dressed? Have you seen the look he gives at Jesus when Jesus is facing the other direction? Like, it's got to be Judas. No, no, no. They're caught off guard too. And they're like, wait, is it me? Because there wasn't something obvious about what was going on in Judas's heart, but they recognized what was going on in theirs. The second is this. Jesus. Jesus is offering this meal of grace to his betrayer. Judas is at the table, folks. And yet Jesus in his mercy offers him the same meal. Let's keep reading. Verse 22. And as they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day in which I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. To understand what's happening in this passage, you need to understand a little bit about Passover. A little bit about Passover meal. See, the Passover was a was, was a meal that they would celebrate. That that the that the nation of Israel would celebrate every single year, leading into the Day of Atonement. This recognition that God Himself, who saved them out of slavery in Egypt, would also atone for their sins and and cover their sins with His with blood. It started when God rescued Egypt or Israel out of Egypt, as you. Charlton Heston introduces us to in the Ten Commandments. I, I keep using that reference, but half of you weren't old enough to even have seen that movie. So um, I guess we need a new one. But the, the in, in this <laughs> – sorry for the um, – in this story – God is bringing plagues upon Egypt to, tr- to, to punish them for the slavery that they have imposed on the nation of Israel. And that God is going to rescue Israel out of Egypt and lead them to a promised land. But before they go, the last plague is this, is this, uh, is this angel of death that will sweep through is- Egypt and will kill the firstborn of every home. Every home. The firstborn will die. Except... The homes in which a lamb has been sacrificed in, it, in its place and the blood is painted on the doorposts of the house. And what Jesus is saying is that through death, Israel will be delivered from death. Through death, Israel will be delivered from death. And as they paint the, 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 the doorframe with the blood, they would, that evening would celebrate Passover. This Passover meal was one of hope of, of, of seeing how Jesus will lead the or to see how Yahweh will lead uh, Israel out of Egypt, and they would celebrate it every single year as a remembrance of the time when God passed over Israel and spared them. That through death He saved them from death. See what would happen is as they were as they were. Um, celebrating this meal, as they were celebrating this meal, the host would stand up and would explain aspects of the meal. He would recount the story to tell them what's happening in this moment. This is what Jesus is doing right here. He's the host of the meal, this Passover meal, but he gives it a radical new interpretation. You see, the, the host would hold up the different elements as the meal would go and talk about how God led Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. But Jesus stands up and holds the bread and holds the cup and gives a radical different interpretation. That this bread is now my body and this, blood is now, or this wine is now my blood. Jesus is presenting himself as a new Passover meal or declaring this meal as a new Passover meal. I'm not sure where you are at the moment. But I know that many of us in this room are feeling the sting of death. Many of us in this room over the last few years, the last few months have felt the sting of death. I got off the phone with a dear friend of mine this last week who's His wife got a devastating diagnosis, and he's fearing death, and she's fearing death. You see, when we're talking about death, we're not talking about some abstract idea uh, that's separated out from our experience. We're talking about the thing that hits us the deepest, and some of us in this room are feeling this. Some of us are feeling the, the death that comes through sin. You're you're walking right now through the consequences of what happens when sin brings death. It, It brings a loss of relationship, a loss of flourishing, a loss of hope, a loss of peace. So we in this room are feeling the weight of this. So were his disciples. His disciples were feeling the weight and the fear of death. But what we see here is that Jesus' death is the only hope we have for life. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about Mark, uh, or we've talked about how Mark presents Jesus as a new temple, as the old temple is being Judged, he put, presents himself as a new temple. Right here, what he's doing is he's replacing the sacrificial system with himself. The whole Old Testament way of dealing with sin, the sacrificial system, he's, putting, he's judging that and putting him, his own death in its place. He is the death that bring, leads to life. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest into the holy places every year with blood that's not his own. For then he, Jesus, would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is what Chad preached last week, that we await Christ's return. And we stay awake to the reality that He's coming back. See what Jesus is doing in this meal is giving them a better sacrifice, a better grace, a better a better hope. But this wasn't offered to ev- this. This wasn't a, a life that just that 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 hits everybody. This isn't universalism. The text here tells us that it's that it's through faith in Jesus that we are saved, and it's Him that we eagerly wait for. You see, the grace that we find at the Lord's table, the meal we're going to take in just a few minutes, the grace we find here only comes to us through death. The life that we receive here only comes through death. Jesus didn't go around his death to give us grace. He went through death to give us this grace. This meal is not just a remembrance of things that have happened before. This is a place where we come weary from our sin and weary from death in order to receive fresh grace and fresh life. This is a grace meal. You see, in nature, life leads to death and death leads to more death. But in Jesus, death leads to life And this is our hope. Again, I'm not sure what you carried in this morning. I'm not sure what you're carrying right now. The sting of death, fear of death. Maybe it's the pain of the death that comes from sin, either your sin or someone else's. But as scary as death is, you don't need to fear it. And here's why. Death doesn't get the final word. Jesus does. Death hurts. Death is an enemy, but death doesn't win. It doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. So how do we respond to this? We come to Jesus. We come to Jesus and receive the life that he gives us. We receive the life that he gives us. If you're here and you would say you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to implore with you, don't run out of this room without reckoning with his words here. Because if this text is true, and I believe that it is, there is only one hope you have for life, and that is him. But just as only those who trusted in Yahweh during the Passover were saved, only those who trust in Jesus are saved by his death. For those of you that are followers of Jesus, I wish following Jesus meant that we never felt the pain of death, never experienced it, never had to deal with it. But that's not real. So what I want you to do is I want you to, before the Lord, own what you're feeling right now. Own, own the experience of death. And I want you to come to Jesus, to this meal, that just as he offered life to his friends, he offers to you this morning. And I want you to come and receive grace. I'm asking that the Lord will work in us to make us into a people a people of light in a culture saturated by darkness. And that he would make us into a people of life in a culture saturated by death. Let's pray.